Hello listeners, this is Project Ayasu and today we have a guest who hasn't really been, yeah, who, who, who hasn't really had personal issues with mental health, but what he brings to the table is much more exciting in terms of the root causes of why society views mental health as a stigma. And today we're going to discuss about this. Hi, Aditya. I'm Elena. And hi, uh, I am Shashwat. And welcome to today's episode of Project Yasu, a mental health awareness podcast. Today we're going to be discussing few topics with our esteemed guest: um, mental health and how it's been treated by society, and the stereotypes and stigmas that surround mental health. So, um, Aditya, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. So, to all the listeners out there, my name is Aditya Polaseri. Currently, I am 18 and I'm going to be going to university this year as an incoming freshman. But a little bit of general background, although I myself have not been challenged with all sorts of mental afflictions, I have actively been working with people who have. Uh, since 2018, I have been on the board of members for a Bangalore-centric, or actually just a currently only Bangalore uh, NGO named Eka Charitable and Educational Trust, or Educational Charitable Trust. And they work with differently able children and children with special needs. And they train them and teach them with the care and empathy that most classical classes cannot. And they help them succeed in their 10th and 12th grade NIO sports. So I've worked very, very closely with all sorts of children and not just uh, professionally, intimately too. I've helped people work their way through a lot of mental anxiety challenges. Um, That's wonderful. And as you've mentioned, you've been working a lot with uh, children with specific uh, disorders and mental um, issues. So I guess the first question that we would ask is, how seriously is your work or how seriously is the issue that you're working on taken in society, like around you and with the people you've talked to about what you're doing? So I know this might not be a classical way of looking at it, but I think that they they treat it as a faraway topic. I think they treat mental health like a very, very external idea. I think that people are aware that mental health issues exist because I've heard my friends say that they have a grandfather with a mental issue, they have a parent, not a parent, they have a distant relative with a mental issue. And they are aware of mental health being a problem, not just around me. I'm talking about even the families Eka works with, they're aware mental health is a problem. But the issue that I see most often is that it is not a problem concerning them. If they are sane, they are fine. And that's no more, no less. So the entire system is okay, as in there's no animosity saying, okay, people who have mental health issues are fundamentally dirty or crippled. No, there's no astigmatism there. But I think the issue comes from the fact that there's so much uh, externalization and so much distancing that people kind of snap when it comes to actually having to deal with that. 
someone's going through a panic attack, what do I do? I leave the room. You know what I mean? I don't want to hurt them when they're in a panic attack because what if I make something worse? That's the mentality we're going into. Not, okay, let's find them, tell them to breathe, move them into a different group. Do you see what I mean? There's no active compassion or care in the circles I see. However, there is awareness. And I think that that's the first bridge we need to get up. Um, thank you so much. Uh, moving on. Yes, so what are the impacts of awareness on societies around India and the world? Well, I think when you ask that question, impacts of awareness is pretty powerful. The second you can tell people that, yes, this exists, that's one thing, but telling them how to work with what exists is another. I think that simply telling people that mental illnesses are out there is similar to telling people, okay, global warming is out there, except they're going to look at you, blink and say, yeah, but I'm not seeing oceans by my doorstep. Why do I have to care? You know what I mean? It's not necessarily a personal problem. So I think it's really nice that things like this, especially podcasts, you know, you're getting people to come up here and give it an emotional human take. It's not just a statistic. I think that's really awesome. So I think uh, like what I understood from what you said is that awareness and education should always go hand in hand. So it shouldn't just be like blind facts, but it should also be like more of an explanation about what you can do to help out in the situations and how it's caused. Because most of the stigmas that we see are definitely like from some sort of root of some sort of misinterpretation of how the illness was caused. So what, and since you obviously work in a field more related to education and awareness both, how do you think that's impacted the people you've been talking to? I couldn't agree more. I believe that practicality has to come with the theory, 100%. Uh, I know people who are aware of uh, depression, correct? And many people, as I think you guys would know too, believe that depression is self-diagnosable. Depression is when you feel uncontrollably sad, is what so many people believe, right? But only once you see somebody going through depression, when you see someone unnaturally quiet, you ask them something, and then with dead hollow eyes, they respond saying, I don't know what to do with myself, you know? Their voice is trembling from helplessness. Only then do you realize, well, that's depression. It's not just a few tears and everything is okay. Depression is clinical. It's not just endorphins are maladjusted and a series of hormones are improperly received. It is more than that. And not just being able to see the facts, but being able to see that reality, that education that so many people lack, that's where things begin to fall apart. And without that education, I think, as a lot of people say, stigma is created. People are socially distanced. Like a depressed person or a anxiety attack prone individual, uh, the easiest thing for someone to register around them is, I don't want to involve myself with this because what if I make it worse? 
What if I make their depression worse? What if I make their anxiety worse? What if I make their bipolar disorder worse? In reality, that's not how it works, right? Because we see a disease, like we see any sort of bacterial infection, like a virus, we only see hard theory and a very mental, emotional, and personal issue is alienated. I agree 100%. Hi, so another question I had was, since you talked about education, right, educating people, so what advancements do you feel can be made in terms of education today, right? I mean, with the COVID-19 pandemic, so what can be made better in terms of education to people who don't know much about mental health? It's also very, very valid. I think I myself don't have any answers for economic strata, for every single mentality, for every single locality and every single ethnic background, right? Because to approach someone in a lower income family who may be not necessarily who may not necessarily have the technology that a podcast would reach, you'd have to have a different means, right? So I think with relevance to the audience you guys are working with or in general is I think storytelling. I think that being able to harm or at least let me take a step back, right? I love the English language as a whole. Right. I've been writing poems. Uh, I've written long stories. I've done writing competitions. And I think even Shashwat knows we've worked on some bars together, you know. So I've done a little bit of rap too. And I think the one thing I notice is that English as a form of communication or any form of communication has the power to communicate an emotion, right? Or offer someone the idea of an emotion. And here the issue is I feel like people lack that emotional connect or that real world practical gravity and being able to tell that story, not just a personal, oh, I am a survivor of depression. No, more gritty, more real, as in when I felt helpless, it wasn't just I was okay after a good meal and a good night's sleep because I couldn't eat. I didn't have appetite. I couldn't sleep properly. I forced myself to hype on coffee. And by the time I knew it, I was three days without sleep and it was even worse. You see what I mean? I mean, it's not as simple as I am a survivor. It is more so the story of that survivor that makes sense. And I think that again, things like a podcast, being able to get individuals who are comfortable, of course, first of all, their consent, who are comfortable coming up here and talking about the pure agony and the immense amounts of effort they have to put into their daily living that creates so much of a burden on those afflicted with mental illnesses. Um, so if I could add like something kind of related to Shashwat's question, I definitely think that while educating or while providing statistics and facts, there always has to be an emotion backing it up because humans are emotional creatures. We, are, we, live, in, we live in groups, we live in society, we are society-based creatures. We need emotion and we depend on different emotions like anxiety, anger, fear to continue surviving. And 
and I think this is also related to the education system in some ways or forms. When we're just receiving plain information that's been written just to provide like a numerical value or a statistic, it doesn't entirely help to inform the person on the other side what exactly is going on. So you may know that, okay, depression is because, uh, you know, something is wrong with the person's nervous system. There's a hormone imbalance that neurotransmitters are being blocked. But you may not understand that while that is happening, it's not as straightforward as, suppose, diabetes, where where your insulin isn't being released properly. It's a lot more complicated because it's happening in your brain and it has direct impacts on the emotions and the actions you take. So I don't think you can really separate emotion from mental disorders and mental illnesses because so much of it is emotion-based. And correct me if I'm wrong or you disagree. I am definitely in the same boat as you because I feel like when it comes to matters of fundamental perception with the brain, it's one of the most delicate organs we have right it's insulated in several layers of fat it is maintained with so many neural firings every single second it's not a simple cut that we're dealing with right it's not a simple scabbing over it's not a simple wounding. it is more internal it is a struggle and i think at this point we have to divert into philosophy right or fundamental psychology the human mind or the psyche is made up of the id, the ego, superego. It's talking about the primal subconsciousness, the consciousness. There is the chakra system, which says the first four are animal chakra. The first three are animal chakras. After that, you go into the human and divine chakras. There's so many different ways of looking at it. But every single psychology and spirit, spiritualism, for that matter, fundamentally de- describes the mind as a very, very struggling tool trying to seek some form of enlightenment, right? And if that process is impeded, it hurts. I don't know, there was a really nice uh, analogy that I think I made a while back, if I might like to share it. Um, It goes like this. go ahead. Yeah. So I think I wrote this a while back for a mental health piece, I believe, mental health center piece, but... It's a little like this. The human body creates patterns, right? Creates habits. And the more habits it has control over, the more it is aware of its surroundings, right? The more it is comfortable, the more it is in control, right? So uh, if I may, uh, can I make this a bit interactive with one of you? Of course, Shashwat. Sure, yes. Yeah, awesome. It's going to be pretty fun. So, do you guys like cake? Definitely. Yeah, sure. Oh my god, I love cake. What's your favorite flavor? Um, I would say like chocolate. Definitely chocolate. Awesome. So, as a thank you for having me on the podcast, sometime today or tomorrow, I might go down and get you a piece of that chocolate cake. There's a bakery. Uh, there's a bakery, I think, right outside my house. And I just tried some of that chocolate cake I got you. And my God, is it good. It's just so mind-blowingly good. You know those places that give you those amazing icings, the stuff that's just so light that you can eat the icing alone and finish the cake as a separate dish? Yeah, it's just that sort of icing. It's mind-blowingly heavenly. 
So the next time I come down, I know that I'm going to go to that bakery and there's going to be a piece of chocolate cake waiting for me. I mean, I could have been running. I could have gone for a walk. I could have just come home after a tiring day of work, but that chocolate cake will be there, right? It's going to be there for me. And that's a pattern. My uh, fundamental satisfaction is templated onto that cake. And I find joy when I have that cake. But then the moment, the waking moment, the bakery says closed, what happens? What happened to you guys? I would probably be like, kind of like very sad and definitely a bit angry, but I guess I would get over it and find a new bakery eventually. Yeah. And that is the power of the rational mind. The ability to say, okay, it's closed. I can come back tomorrow is a way of coping with your discomfort, right? Fundamentally, you're uncomfortable that there's no cake. So the thing is that the moment you know that something has an issue, you have a rational, logical, and functional mind that is allowing you to bypass and go beyond that issue. You can either tell yourself a little bit of, um, how can I say it? A little bit of ignorance and say, okay, it'll be there tomorrow for me. You could say, okay, I'm going to find an equally good cake today. But fundamentally, that problem solving is something that a rational mind has. But the second mental issue comes into the picture, that entire set of problem solving dissolves. So this, imagine this, say you have bipolar disorder, correct? You go up to that, you go up to that uh, bakery and it's a 50-50 chance you're going to love or hate the cake. That's agonizing, right? You never know whether or not you're going to enjoy what's around you because your mood is constantly within a polar shift. People who go through anxiety attacks, imagine how much worry they go through every single morning waking up and asking themselves, is the cake there for me? What if it's closed? What if it's closed forever? That's mounting paranoia. I would hate it every single morning, waking up and telling myself, what if, you know? And then things go crazy when you talk about the heavier disorders. Imagine psychosis. They don't even know if they're crossing a road. Imagine people who have high functioning capability disorders. They don't know how to open the door to get to their cake. Imagine people who have Alzheimer's. Every single morning, they forget what cake they wanted. Imagine how much doubt issue, stress, and overall pain you'd be going through just to get a piece of cake. And then there's people with long-term memory disabilities. And then there's people with all sorts of neural pain, right? They can't get that cake. Even, again, depression. The second that bakery is closed, you are crying outside the bakery, barely struggling to wonder why you even came here in the first place. And that's what I mean, right? The second you lose the ability to make a rational, functioning and stable decision is the moment that the world begins to burn for you. And that's what I mean, that when I think of this as an emotional issue, that you really do need to give a lot of compassion to those with mental issues because they struggle. And for people who don't struggle, 
it's a lot easier to be able to say, yes, I'm here for you. I am a boulder in these uncertain times. No matter what, I will point you back to your bakery. I think that's the least we could do. You know what I mean? Uh, I definitely agree. Uh, especially, and I love the analogy, honestly. Not only did we talk about cake, but we also reached much more important and uh, deeper perspectives on the issue. And I completely agree with what you said at the end, that I think that neurofunctioning and neurotypical people, the very least that we could do to help out our friends and family is to remind them that they aren't alone in their struggle. And even though we may not relate to it entirely, we'll always be there to help. Yeah. You may need 100%. to continuously reiterate it again and again because a person who is anxious or has an anxiety disorder is not going to accept it in one go. You may have to keep saying it again and again, but I feel like the least we could do is not get tired of having to say it again and again, you know? Yeah, I think that... The funny part is many people believe that that's very selfish. I was just saying, okay, people who have anxiety issues, people who have mental issues, why do they why do they expect me, who's okay, to shoulder their burden? Well, the funny part is that's what charity and selfless, selflessness is about, right? The ability to shoulder somebody else's burden, right? I think that when people cannot shoulder their burden, I think it's the height of folly to say, okay, so why should I? Because you have the shoulders to do so. I think that if you have the tools to help, it's always good to do so. And that's actually amazing. And on that note, we are coming to the end of our 22 minutes. So I would just like to say thank you again. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Aditya. And I hope you enjoyed this as much as we enjoyed putting it up to you. And this is Project Iyasu. Go follow our Instagram, project underscore Iyasu. And watch out for our next episode. Thank you.